thanks for joining me for another episode of the How Might We podcast. I'll make my housekeeping very brief this week because I've got an amazing guest that's been a bit of an inspiration to me over the last few years, so I can't wait to, to introduce him. Um, so a few updates. First to say that I'm really enjoying writing this weekly Friday newsletter that I've called New Norms. I've had some lovely back and forths with subscribers by email, so that's been, been really rewarding, really fun. Uh, and if you want to do, if you want to join in on that, it's um, just just sign up really. So it's johnbarnes.me, that's j-o-n-barnes.me forward slash newsletter. Um, and they, those pop into your inbox on a Friday. Uh, secondly, I've nearly finished the audiobook for Tech Monopolies, a short rant about addictive design. Uh, and I'm going to send that to those who bought the paperback and digital versions too, uh, just because it's, it's fun to share, share more of this stuff and it's fun to make actually. Also, the first run of my online course on organisational change is doing pretty well. Uh, so I've tested that, it's going great, and I'm excited to make that open to the public soon. So get in touch if you're interested. Um, you can do it on the contact form on my website if, if you're interested in knowing a bit more. Um, so just get in touch about that. And then finally, if you want to support my work, you can do that in a few ways. You can subscribe to the newsletter. You can rate the podcast on your podcast app. Uh, you can share it with friends or you can contribute on a monthly pay what you want basis on patreon.com forward slash John Barnes. Um, and you can also um, find my books, um, particularly recently Tech Monopolies at johnbarnes.me forward slash books. Okay, on to this week's guest. So this week I'm speaking to Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas is a really special thinker and I think it's really important that more people hear his ideas. You know, he's influenced my work a lot to the point where my eight-year-old walks around singing his name. Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, along with other names such as... Noam Chomsky. And actually, I think in some senses, Douglas is the Chomsky of the internet. He's, he's one of the internet's treasures. So it's not an exaggeration to say that I felt really privileged and grateful that he agreed to come onto the podcast, and particularly as he's recently been on, on some super famous ones, including the Making Sense podcast with Sam Harris and the Under the Skin podcast with Russell Brand. Um, so to, for him to make time to, to speak to me here was, was really wonderful. Uh, he's sometimes known as a media theorist, Douglas is, which I think is, is far too narrow a view for his work. I find he's a bit of a... A polymath in some senses, uh, from a cyberpunk in the internet's early days to an international truth teller, I think, nowadays. He's written almost 20 books on our relationship with technology, often foreseeing patterns long before everyone else catches up. Um, so he coined terms that we use every day, like viral media or social media or extractive economics. Um, he, he, he really is one of the, the leading thinkers when it comes to our relationship with, with technology and digital capitalism. I became familiar with his work through his book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, which is amazing. And, and I read that years ago. Uh, and I think it just showed us that we should be deeply worried about the power of, of the big tech monopolies. And, and he showed the economics behind that in, in a really, um, really well-argued piece. Um, but in this conversation, we discuss his new book, Team Human, um, where rather than just rage against the machine, he makes a, a poetic and passionate plea uh, for us to promote a basic human essence and to seek each other and, and connect to one another, um, to one another, 
um, I think it's a beautiful and much needed message. He's he's asking us to to look into each other's eyes again um, and, and put our screens down for a minute. In this short conversation, we skip over a load of topics, which I think makes it a really fun listen. Uh, so we talk about digital economics, growth obsession. We talk about writing and publishing books in the digital age and, and how that's dif different and a bit weird. Um, the cyberpunk movement. Talk about transhumanism, human humane technology, storytelling and narrative. Talk about Darwinism and how it's it's misframed and sometimes sometimes even going against what Darwin actually said. Um, and and loads more. So so there's lots to listen to in this short conversation that I had with Douglas. So anyway, I hope you really enjoy it. I really suggest that you join Team Human. Um, so buy buy the book. Um, you can do that at teamhuman.fm, uh, and you'll also find Douglas's podcast there, which is brilliant. Um, and and just enjoy this great conversation with with uh, the lovely Douglas Rushkoff, which I've entitled "How Might We Join Team Human." Enjoy. Okay, thanks for joining me, Douglas. All right, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I've been. I've, so, I mean, you know this, I've been following your work for quite some time uh, and you and I have been in touch by email before. So first of all, I'm really grateful for you. Uh, in the past, you've given me a few, a few tips. I feel like I'm, I'm like fo following in your, in your coattails or, or something like that. So th thanks for just that bit of kindness. Oh, you've given well, welcome. Me. Welcome to a life of pain and suffering. Yes, <laughs> I know. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely get some of your your professional tips, some mentoring towards the end of this as we go on. First though, you're, so with, you've launched Team Human. Are you in the midst of your book tour at the moment? How's that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's funny. I mean, I guess it's, it's called a book tour and it's even called a book. I mean, you know, most, <laughs> I feel in some ways I'm, I'm just trying to sort of hack the, uh, the, the book universe in order to invade the media universe with some, you know, positive ideas about, you know, human beings and human dignity in a, in a digital age. So, in, I don't know, this book feels different to me in that it's not like I wrote this book about something and then I write these articles and go do media in order to inform people about that thing you know the story of this or the process of that you know this is more a book as of almost a form of of activism and not really political activism but but you know sort of deep human social activism it's a way of uh trying to to kind of put a name to a a movement or a drive to you know to promote human autonomy when there's so many forces kind of uh, set against it. But yeah, so it's it's got the outward form of a book tour. I'm going to different places and speaking, but it's more uh, uh, it's more like I wrote the book to get me there than that I'm doing those things to sell books. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, I've, so I've read Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus before, which was like, which has been really influential for me. And then I read Team Human recently, and they're very, very different books. It feels like the first one was a book that you wrote and then you go on stage and you give the short version of the book. Whereas I think what you just said there, that you wrote the book so that you could get the stage to 
give this rallying cry kind of feels like what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately or not, most people don't read or buy books now. So even though, I mean, Team Human's like by far my my best book. In some ways, it's the only real book book I've written other than maybe Programmer Be Programmed, where it's a book where the experience of reading the book, it conveys the sort of the essential message rather than the facts in the book. You know, this is a book, I mean, there's references, but it's not like a book with like footnotes on on this or that. It's this, it's this experience. So I'm a little sad that more people aren't going to have that experience because they just think, oh, it's another book. Well, they saw the TED Talk, right? So. Yeah, exactly. They see a TED Talk. Right. So a TED Talk, you know, you can in 10 or 12 minutes express one of the ideas in one of the 100 little sections of this book. This book's written in sort of 100 short sections. Each one is meant to be, you know, a uh, uh, a single sitting as it were you know you could put it in your bathroom yeah. or put it next to your bedside and you've got like oh here's this sort of four or five paragraphs i can read now and get this uh, uh sort of thought construct into me or this uh a new understanding of something so it's meant to be these little bite-sized chunks you know more of a like a little almost like a little a spiritual book than a uh than a, a you know, then a guns, germs, and steel. This is the story of how white Western European colonialism destroyed <laughs> the indigenous peoples of the world. You know, it's not, it doesn't really do that. But, uh, but that's okay, because still, if someone gets a dose of me on a podcast, that's like hearing two or three of them or reading two or three of them or someone sees me do a, a short talk, that's like getting one of them. So it, at least it's still... Uh, I mean, shoot, if I can reach, you know, a few million people with one or two ideas, um, that's, that's as good as reaching, you know, 20,000 people with 100. Yeah, no, I get, I, I get that. I mean, what was interesting for me was that reading this book actually just made me maybe understand you better, or maybe I, huh. this is the first time we're speaking, so, and, and, I, and then we've never met, so perhaps not. But I say that because... Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus for me was, it was kind of enlightening in that I'd written a lot about digital democracy, so about governance, and I'd, I work a lot with um, organizational governance and, and moving that towards self-management. And you kind of created this layer in between that I just never really studied, which was this layer of, uh, of, about the economy and capitalism and, and technology's effect and relationship to that. So it felt like quite, not heavy, but I felt, um, I felt like a good student reading uh -huh. that book. Whereas reading Team Human, I feel like you're waxing lyrical, you know, it feels more like you're like, like Douglas the poet has come out perhaps. Uh, and it's far broader. You're touching on uh, re religion, science, spirituality, technology, uh, and all of their, their different bits. It's, can you tell me a little bit about that process? Cause you, you come across differently. I see you more as an artist than a scientist, or perhaps both having read Team Human. Yeah, well, I mean, I wrote Throwing Rocks to the Google Bus to prove something, you know, that, that people really are so stuck in the, in the religion of corporate capitalism you know, and technological progress and, and, and the way those two things dovetail, that they see it as sort of the natural state of being. You know, it got to the point where even, you know, Kevin Kelly, who's a smart guy, could actually write a book, you know, what technology wants, as if technology is this living force, you know, that wants 
something mm-hmm. from us that it's an that it's a fourth kingdom of life you know or or the the people who look at the way we develop digital technology companies and think that oh this is the only way they can work that if you want to have a company the company has to grow has you have to please your shareholders it has to grow at the rate of the market and i really needed to um to show people that, you know, the corporation and central currency and stocks and derivatives, that these were all inventions of human beings, that they, and they weren't even invented to promote prosperity or to help business. They were invented by a very, very small group of people who were looking at how to game the system and how to extract money from real businesses, not provide money to them or how to extract value from people. So it was important that that I set that up, you know, and prove it, you know, and that was already, you know, seven, eight years ago, I wrote that book, in order to get to sort of prime the pump to soften society. So I write that. And now, you know, seven, eight years later, everybody sort of agrees. Oh, I get it. These companies have these really bad business plans. I get it. They're extractive, or we are the product, we're not no longer the users, or um, they're going to be, you know, and yeah, it gets laughed at at the time, but then when, you know, the 2016 election happens and people see, oh, I get it. This is what social media does. This is who the real customers are. This is, you know, how people are played. Um, so it, they, they've caught up to that. So now I can write the book and say, all right, now that you know all that, here's what we have to do, you know, and what we have to do is not necessarily fight the disease like in some allopathic medical model but we've got to uh, 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 we've got to enhance the vitality of the human organism we've got to increase our actual health we've got to accept the notion that human beings are special and we have dignity and we do something that markets and machines just don't do, that markets and machines are not contributive to life, to thought, to, uh, to soul, but they are, are extractive and diminishing. And to do that, though, I've got to make an argument for the soul, for human weirdness, for for novel behaviors for uh, anomalous ideas and and that is a poetic uh that's a poetic project that's closer to a david lynch movie than a ken burns documentary so that's why i had to go in the direction of this much more heartfelt manifesto it's fact based but it's uh, it's much more from the heart than the head yeah, there's a there's a lot more of the the beat movement in you than 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 that side maybe. I feel like you just basically gave a great agenda for a lot of the things I want to talk to you about. Um, first cool. of all, one of the one of the things you made me think there is, I mean, first of all, it sounds like it sounds like Team Human as a manifesto is a timing thing because, like you said, uh, you needed to prove that this was a problem so that people would would listen to a rallying cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think you touched on it there. It sounds like Trump and Brexit and, and various uh, various catastrophes um, make it timely. Because I, I felt that as well. So I wrote, I wrote Democracy Squared around the time Trump was elected and or published it then. And it was 
uh, I, I, what I felt in the years since was that what was a hypothesis has been confirmed, but perhaps that there's this one benefit, which is that people are recognizing that uh, a, a deeper, like a burning platform. So perhaps, am I right that Team Human kind of can exist or, or people can listen to you because there's an existing like political context that worries them and perhaps they wouldn't have listened to that had, had Trump not been elected or not that I'm saying it's a good thing. Yeah, it's, um, it certainly put, uh, put something in, in people's minds. It's, it's destabilized people in a way. I think, you know, and I, I think for a long time, people have been looking for something real to hang on to. That's part of what digital has done to us. Television wasn't quite as, as destabilizing. And television taught us that consumer products were the things that we could hold on to. And even though they weren't ultimately satisfying, people spent their lives trying to get better stuff, the next pair of Nikes, the next automobile, the next Big Mac, whatever it was. I'm going to save up, then I'm going to get it. I'm going to watch TV and see the lifestyles of the rich and famous and then see a commercial and buy that thing. And it wasn't ultimately satisfying, but at least we knew what the job was. And digital... Well, because it's transparent, it's just pretty obvious that the commercial wants you to buy the thing in the commercial. Yeah, I mean, and whether... and, and, And even though it wasn't genuinely satisfying on a soul level the economy was such from post you know post world war ii until really the 1970s or so the economy was growing in a way that allowed people at least to feel like we're getting closer to some magical thing to some moment of satisfaction and uh, digital really broke that apart uh, in terms of both, you know, what it did to the economy and what it did to a, as a media environment, it it was destabilizing. There's all these different instances of ourselves operating simultaneously. It's collapsed time in a way, putting everything into this perpetual now. That's what I wrote about in in Present Shock, and it's untethered us from the narratives that we used to use to organize our life experience. We don't even have a company that you work for and you retire from, the, a marriage that you start when you're like graduating high school. And you know, the, all of these arcs, uh, expectational curves have been, have been defeated. So we end up in a, in a digital maelstrom, just trying to grab onto something, looking for something. You know, it feels like a, a Tom Hanks in that Castaway movie when he he's on he's on his little he makes this little raft and he loses his his basketball that was his friend he called Wilson you know and he's Wilson Wilson because that was that thing to grab onto that's something and I feel like that's where we are now and that's why people might grab onto the false notion of gosh English nationhood as a real thing, as if a nation is real. I mean, the, the boundaries around the island of, of, of England are slightly real. Those are at least natural mm. compared to, say, the nation states of Europe, which were you know, completely invented, or any nation state for that matter. These are inventions compared to cities that, that we're, we're living in such an abstract 
reality that we're, you know, we're desperate to, to find a thing to grab onto. And uh, uh, Trump was one of those things. Brexit's one of those things. And what I'm trying to say is, look, those are fake things. What's real is your experience. Human beings are real. Um, the, the organismic relationship between people is real. We've been buying this false mythology of evolution as some competitive battle for survival between the fittest individuals. And that's just not true. It's not even what Darwin said. He's been bastardized by the neoliberals and the libertarians to, to support their uh, competitive framework, where Darwin was really saying, no, no, look, uh, species survive when they're able to collaborate, that evolution is the story of uh, increasingly more complex ways of of collaborating and communicating mm. that we are uh, socialists and that now that we are desocializing ourselves with digital technology and capitalism we are losing any kind of power that we might have that's interesting so that that question on evolution is actually one i wanted to directly ask you i've i've not been back to to, I've, I've not read, read Darwin's original words, so perhaps you can help me with this. But it does seem to me like um, the narrative of survival of the fittest is a, is a story and that you can take the, the underlying science and create a different story from it. You know, uh, as an example, uh, evolution is a set of experiments that we run together and we promote the most likely one to succeed for, for the species or something. You know that, that it can be a story, it, you can tell a competitive story or you can tell a collaborative one, but it, it's, it's essentially just the reading of it that makes it such. Well, yes and no, except the actual science doesn't the competitive narrative. Right. The actual science, you know, I was taught in school wrong science. I was taught trees compete for sunlight and the tall trees get the light and crowd out the little trees who then die in the shade. And it turns out that's not true, that trees in the forest collaborate. As long as it's a, a real forest with a multiplicity of collaborating and operating species, it so you, you have big trees that get the uh, summer. So the big trees then end up passing their nutrients through the uh, network of mushrooms under the ground to the smaller trees. And then in the winter when they lose their leaves, the smaller trees that are evergreens pass nutrients through the mushrooms to the bigger trees. And that's how they survive. And it's just example after example after example that adaptations are made in concert with the adaptations of other species, not uh, in competition with them. And if human beings are the most uh, advanced or evolutionarily advanced species, it's really just a, a, a testimony to the extent to which we've developed the means to communicate and collaborate with one another. Right. And your, and your kind of message, I think, is that... Um, the way maybe capitalism times digital capitalism uh, has worked out is that it's ended up dividing us from one another more than it's brought it together. And that's, that's the kind of call to arms, I think, that, that you're well, making. Is that right? Yeah, and it's doing it by design. Now, this is the way consumerism worked, of course, because people who are alienated from one another buy more stuff. There was yeah. a 
you know, there was a belief that it would be good for business if people were doing things with each other. But you buy one deck of cards and then you just play cards with it with another person and then you're wasting all that possible consumer time. So you need everyone to be alone and isolated and constantly buying things that they hope will connect them with other people, but that can't actually do that. Right. If you if the, the blue jeans commercial says you buy these blue jeans and you will get laid. They don't mm. want you to get laid because then you'll stop buying blue jeans because yeah, you're you need to laid. keep being in the stage of wanting to get laid. The satisfaction right. of that need won't won't increase Levi's sales. Exactly. And what they learned in, in developing digital technologies, which are basically brainwashing technologies, is that people are more vulnerable to brainwashing when they're feeling anxious and afraid, when they're not using their, their neocortex or their frontal lobe, when they're way back in the brainstem, like little reptiles worried for fight or flight. You know, that's when they click on lots of stuff. That's when you can make them believe weird things. So all of our social media networks and platforms are designed by scientists who go to Stanford to learn how to do this in the captology department at, at Stanford, how to manipulate, to manipulate human beings. And it's, it's led to this, this, uh, an, an internet that has, uh, uh, very, uh, efficiently reduced human society to this mob of anxious atomized individuals yeah and i mean and furthermore when one you're atomized to the degree where i mean being on social media now feels like shouting really loudly into an empty room so you're, you're just never quite satisfied i compare it to like the first drag on a cigarette can feel great and then this then after that you're just trying to reproduce the feeling that you had from the first drag and it's never quite the same it feels like social media is just this this infinite cigarette that everyone's smoking and not quite getting what they want from it. So they keep getting more. Right. And the, just what you were mentioning there about the, the captology department. So I think you're, you're refer, are you referring to like the BJ Fogg persuasive technology? Lab right. Stuff? So with that, I wanted to bring that up as a specific point. Cause I, I've mentioned it a lot recently in my writing and it's, I think it's, I'm I'm curious to hear how this stuff's landing with people mid mid book tour for you because for me that is the stuff that really hits people and I think it's because it feels so concrete that that you you if you're told that Instagram Facebook Twitter etc have these dynamics if someone tells them to you then you'll you might be more likely to notice them next time so they feel in my experience when I've shared those with people they felt very real to them is that, is that an experience you're having as well? Or are people still like, no, no, it's all fine. I love, I love Um people. Yes and no. I mean, they get horrified in the moment. You know, they get right, horrified they for their... get a tweet and they go back to it. Yeah, horrified for their children. And then, right, and then they'll tweet the thing I've just said and look and see <laughs> how many retweets did they get. And then that will, you know, make them feel good or bad about themselves. That's funny. I actually had an experience, you know, near AL, he wrote uh, that yeah. famous book, Hooked. I, uh, I, I wrote an article, uh, basically like un unhappy with, with that book or its intentions. And I, I tweeted the article and he must have a bot which auto liked my tweet. Uh, <laughs> so it was just very funny that I was, you know, I was criticizing his work and I just got an auto like, which, which kind of felt like it told the whole story, you know? Aye. 
uh, that does tell the whole story. I mean, he's the guy that, um, I mean, he didn't actually do anything, but he saw that the um, Snapchat and Instagram and all the social media companies had been reading a book on um, persuasion that was written by this uh, woman, this academic who had studied the Las Vegas slot machine algorithms. So he saw that they were trying to port the slot machine algorithms from Las Vegas to the social media feeds and news feeds of our social media networks. And he was like, wow, if they're doing that, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to claim that one. And it's funny because he was published by the same people who did my book present shock back when, and they were like, I was at South by Southwest and they were like, Oh, this is our new book. Will you come? Will you promote it? And all because I had written the book media virus back in 1994 and they saw this and he does too, as the sort of natural outgrowth of that thought, but, but viral contagious viral media uh, was, was, was meant at least when I coined it as a countercultural phenomenon, you know, here's the way that that the yes men and the counterculture are going to propagate the media space with their new ideas. Not here's how we're going to addict uh, the American masses to extractive and exploitative uh, surveillance technologies. Yeah, I mean the intention matters, right? You can because you you could easily write hooked with the same title even. Uh, with the intention to help help people see what's being done to them, right? And th- so the intention is is vital. You, you used the word counterculture there. There's actually something on my notes I wanted to bring up. When I like research you a bit online, uh, the term cyberpunk comes up. I wonder because because uh, that that's a term I've heard I've heard used in in various ray- ways, and it seems to me like you were. Like was that was that a scene that you you were part of? Like was that actually a scene? Uh, the the kind of cyberpunk movement and my I guess I'm saying this my reading from you is that you were kind of an optimist. You saw the potential for technology to to have that kind of kind of activist spirit behind it, and that it's ended up uh, no nowhere near what what you kind of hoped for it. Maybe you can give me a bit of a reading of that. Well, it's funny. I mean, people think I changed. I don't think I did. I think that the the most of the world decided not to uh not to go through that window of opportunity which mm. is sort of sad i mean and even at the at the end of my first book on this sort of cyberpunk possibility it was a book called siberia spelled c y b e r i a and what i did was i argued that we that there's a a movement emerging mainly from the West Coast of the U.S. And it involved everything from fantasy role-playing and chaos math to quantum physics and rave dancing and fractal geometry and, yes, the, the emerging Internet. And this was a book I wrote. What year in, is this? 1992, I wrote it. And it got canceled by Bantam because they thought the Internet would be over by 1993 when the book was supposed <laughs> to come out. So. Uh, but then Harper published it in 1994 when it was still a bit early. But what I really said in that book was um, there's a, a, a kind of a battle that's going to come, that's coming up. And it's between the kind of the forces of the sort of counterculture as 
really articulated by Mondo 2000, which was this early uh, uh, digital psychedelic culture music magazine out of Berkeley in the, in the late 80s and early 90s. And this newcomer called Wired, which was a magazine that was trying to recontextualize the internet and digital as a business story, as you know, something that you, you hire scenario planners and, uh, and, and, and bet on rather than you know, find a bunch of psychedelic kids and build. You know, so, right. uh, so even then, and, and, and it, at the end, uh, I remember the, the, the woman, this woman, Queen Moo, who was the, uh, uh, publisher of Mondo 2000 magazine. She'd gotten pretty paranoid at that point because she thought the CIA was following them and she'd had taken too much spider venom. Somebody had said it, that it led to a paranoid streak. And I remember right before my book came out, she tried to stop it and sue because she didn't like the way her group was, was portrayed. Even though I thought it was loving, she thought it was too, they, they looked too irresponsible because they're all just, you know, doing ketamine and writing articles and stuff. And, uh, and that was when I realized, oh, I think we're going to lose here because it's like our side, it's really hard to be that out there, to be that radical and crazed all the time, you know, and the, the, the hackers, the young hackers were getting arrested. The, the Tipper Gore had sort of pushed through the Computer Decency Act. So the net had gotten less wild. Netscape became a public company. AOL bought Time Warner. And it was like, oh, okay, this is going to become business as usual, except on digital steroids. And then the next 20 years, you know, I've still been arguing for the human potentials of these technologies, what we can actually do culturally. And every once in a while, I get optimistic again, like when the dot-com crash happened in the late 90s. I thought, oh, great, the internet fought off this infection and now it can become social again. And I actually coined social media back in like the early 90s as where the internet would go after the dot-com bust. And uh, it went, though, from being social to being, again, to being surveillance. So they just can't help themselves. They, they sell to the highest bidder, and then they're forced to pivot away from whatever socially, you know, pro-social uh, function or purpose they may have had to become this other really awful, extractive, mind-numbing thing. Yeah, and I think you you really laid that bare for me because I I've, I certainly understand the the optimism part, and I've I've typically typically been very much of that disposal. Now maybe I see it differently. Before it was a, a naive part of me that thought the world would be like that, mm. whereas now optimism's become a tool for me. Where I'm not saying it's going to be like that. I'm saying that's a possibility if we work towards it. And it definitely might not be like that. But if you don't insert that narrative into all the field of probabilities, uh, there's, there's other narratives that could win, and they're not typically the ones that, that we want to win necessarily, as we've seen. Right. But it's hard. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm deeply concerned for mm. you know, our, what's, what's going to happen to our, uh, our world. I mean, I'm, I'm less worried about you know, right now, personally, about uh, uh, 
algorithms or whatever than I am about, you know, the sort of short-term climate change uh, impacting us. This is a, this is a serious moment. Mm, yeah. And, and do you, um, when you think like further into the future, it sounds to me like you're not necessarily worried so much about the technology. You're worried that we're already at a stage where society, like the softer side of the world is lacking, that we've lost our, our tightness in neighborhoods, that we've lost our, I think I read something that you, you'd had, you'd, you'd maybe been attacked or something in New York and that you'd, you'd shared that email with your, your local neighborhood watch kind of thing and that they, they'd more or less um, been worried that the, the prices of the property might change because of that because of you mentioning that kind of thing? Is that? Yeah, that was kind of eye-opening. I mean, what I found out was that these people cared more about the real estate value of their homes than their actual experience of, of their neighborhood. Yeah, I got in oh trouble because I, I mentioned the location where the mugging happened. And the people who lived on that block or right nearby thought, how dare you do that? And I was emailing with them saying, oh, I didn't know. Are you trying to sell your apartment? And they're like, no, I'm not trying to sell it now, but I need my real estate value to go up in order to be able to finance my mortgage. Because so many of these people bought these really crazy mortgages that the only way they could stay in their homes was if the value kept going up enough for every time they refinanced, they would then have a, a sort of a larger, uh, uh, a larger amount of capital under their control. So it was this weird, they were all involved in a kind of almost a Trumpian real estate scheme that was based on their property values going up. And it was more important for the value to go up than the value of their life experience to go up. And that, you know, that's the classic reversal that I'm trying to write about in Team Human 2, where we're looking at metrics and numbers over our actual felt experience of life. Yeah, I think you, what's the term that you have that? The figure in the ground, that's right. Maybe you can yeah. just explain that because I think that that runs through a lot of this stuff. Well, figure in ground is a, a there was actually a, a Danish psychologist. I got to find his name again. It's in the book, but I'm um, in the footnotes. I don't use any, any uh, proper names in the footnotes because I want it to be kind of evergreen and I don't want to give like Google and Facebook too much power. So I never mention any specific company or person. It's just, it, it stays on the, on, you know, in that sort of eternal place. Um, and it makes these things feel much, much more real too. But yeah, yeah. Danish psychologist who he came up with that that famous picture of the um, there's like a goblet in the middle or you could see like two faces on either side in profile. And it, and it's it's an exercise in what he calls figure and ground. In other words, what do you see as the subject and what do you see as the landscape? And for me and for McLuhan, too, it became a really interesting metaphor for like medium and message or or subject and object. And one of the things I've been objecting to in the digital age is how we, the users of digital media, became the used. That, that you know, we're not, you're not using your smartphone. Your smartphone is using you. The, the internet is a whole bunch of non-player character algorithms that are there trying to get you to act in particular ways. That's where the money's going. That's where the research is going in how to manipulate the humans. 
And that's, you know, that's a profound reversal. And that's why I needed to go to this kind of team human thing where, where I can say, well, you know, are, are you the user or the used? Or do you, do you believe that human beings should have autonomy and agency? Or are we only valuable, you know, as, as you know, utility? You know, is that, is that, you know, is that the extent of it? You know, for the inputs and outputs and work done. Well, and it seems that the, the kind of cyclical, like high intensity nature of a lot of our online connections leads us to lose that kind of objectivity or perspective, that first principle thinking that tells you, well, what was the actual point of me using Twitter? Well, if it's to socialize, then it's not serving my purpose. If it was to learn, it's most likely not serving my purpose. Um, and you've forgotten why you went there in the first place. Now you're just on there and you're in it. Um, and you're, you're, you're a lot of the time forgetting the reason you went to your computer or your, your phone. I practice meditation a lot. And I really, just recently, as I've done it more and more, I've really noticed what's kind of going on, like sometimes subtly, like an anxious energy or something like that. Sometimes I'm really noticing thoughts that I'll go to my laptop uh, for, for something like very specific for a job to do. And then before you know, I'm somewhere else and I'm just noticing, oh, wait a minute, I'm like a bit bored right now or I'm, I'm a bit insecure right now or and I'm just noticing I'm being tugged around and I've forgotten the reason that was underlying my use of this technology in the first place. And I think, I think a lot of us might be trapped in that cycle. Yeah, but it's easy to get out. I mean, the easiest way to get out is just establish rapport with another human being. You know, sometimes they're hard to find, but make eye contact with someone, spend time in real spaces with people. You know, that's uh, literally, that's a conspiracy. To conspire means, you know, means to, to breathe together. Aspire is breathe and con is with. You know, you're breathing together is Today, that constitutes a conspiracy. It's like, wait a minute, what network are they on? They're not documenting this. There's no Instagram photo. They're just together, <laughs> breathing together. But that's when you start planning. You know, once you establish uh, rapport with someone, then you can get to solidarity and then you get to uh, uh, social justice activism. Yeah, and these are, these are the values I think you're, you're really championing. Um, I mean, maybe I want I've got a few little bits I wanted to bring up. Um, maybe a good start to that is actually the word humanism, uh, because I want to talk to you about transhumanism really briefly, if that's okay. Um, to, to, do you describe yourself as a humanist? I've not really heard people describe themselves as that before, but I feel you might be okay with that term. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time describing myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> beautiful beautiful man um, <laughs> would you let was, would you let someone else describe you as a human i would yeah i mean i was just when you said but i was just thinking to describe myself I, I had this weird moment i was thinking what would russell brand say you know and that's like <laughs> beautiful man i figure you know what i mean he's he's much better at, at a person who could describe himself um because uh, i don't i don't i don't know i don't because I say this because you're championing, um, you're, cha you're championing that there is some essential um, value to being human. I think at the end of your Sam yeah. Harris interview, you asked him, is this a myth? Am I making this up or am I, am I championing something that actually exists? I'm wondering yeah. where you've got to on that question. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it exists. Um, I think it does. Uh, so yeah, I mean, a humanist, but not in the in the sort of the Renaissance era understanding of humans as individuals and humanism and sort of enlightenment humanism, but humanism as a team sport. So it's sort of a a new or maybe it's even a, a retrieved medieval understanding of what it means to be human. You know, and what it meant to be human then was was to be part of a town. You know, uh, 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 it's a, uh, you know, that, that it goes back to these ideas of, of, of revolution, that being human is a team sport. And we are, we are uh, most human when we are together with one another. And we're you know, least human when we're isolated, alienated. And I, I feel like uh, most most connotations of humanism have more to do with, oh, look at that strident individual and how human that ubermensch has become. And I'm arguing for us to uh, retrieve some older and healthier understandings of what it means to be human. And what I think it means to be human is to be, you know, connected and collaborative and social and part of something larger than oneself. And it's 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 easy to imitate that with sort of Nuremberg rally style, you know, meetings of 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 people. You know, sort of the Trump rally is a good imitation of of being connected to others, but it's not. You know, everybody is in a mythical relationship with the dear leader, and it's really people can only really do this locally and in smaller groups when you actually know each other and and can and can you know connect and collaborate in a in a genuine way yeah it feels like the you know the the open source movement i don't i don't mean code i mean like the the number of the number of kind of decentralized movements i see around really nice ideas that essentially get people to gather in small circles and have genuine conversations are 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 a kind of a part of that, just the idea that we, we need to return to meeting in small communities. I meet, I'm thinking of some, there's like um, one that I've been a part of before. It's a, a men's group. I've actually forgot the name of it, which basically asks, asks group of, groups of, of men to, to meet in, in circles and hear each other out and, and like support each other in community. Um, and it's, it's something that you tend to outsource to, you know, if you're not feeling great, you outsource it to a therapist or a, or a doctor or, or whatever, but very rarely is it a, a neighborhood support group that might help you, might help you to do it. But moving back towards, I mean, I, I say back towards, I don't know if there ever was an era where we, where we truly did that, uh, all hmm. the time feels like a story worth, um, worth like, uh, reaching for, for sure. Yeah. Definitely interesting. I mean, you know, and it doesn't have to get all new age and Robert Bly and chanting at the moon and stuff like that. But, you know, you're right that, um, you know, we may have reached the peak of this kind of Freudian, you know, understanding of humans and that we have this, you know, subconscious or unconscious that, that we're not only individuals, but that there's an individual inside the individual that we can't even know unless we go to some other individual and have them help us mine down to find that one down in there. It's a little, you know, solipsistic. You know, if the, if the 
problem and the solution is essentially social, then there's a limit to how much, you know, we can do, you know, alone in a room with somebody. At least we have to use that moment alone in the room with that person to get the, the strategies and to try things out back in the world with the other people again. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. But that's not the it's not the result in of itself. I mean, I definitely know people where therapy has become uh, just a, a form of entertainment or or something. It's it's the figure in the ground thing again. It's forgotten that the purpose of that was for me to feel feel strong and able to to be and listen uh, and be intimate with others um, again. I, I, ju- I just want to. Yeah. Sorry, what were you, you going to say? Yeah, I mean. I, I, of course, for many people, there are people who are in pain, you know, and there there's no one to to help them or to hear them. And right, obviously, for for people who are in in mental psychological distress, right, right, you know, it's an important thing. I wouldn't want anyone to think, oh, look at these guys saying that, you know, therapy's not not valuable. No. You know, it it is it is valuable, and and you know, obviously, if someone's just using it for entertainment, then you know, that might be a little something, yeah. but you know, it's, it's even as entertainment, it's better entertainment than <laughs> a lot of what's out there. You know? <laughs> no, thanks for clarifying. The, the, yes. That's important to clarify. It's obviously not what I meant when someone, when, when and I'm, I've benefited from it loads, I guess what I'm saying is that you're promoting uh, just a, a reconnection with, with community and, and collective and, um, human human intimacy and support yeah. that and we've really, become alienated right. from technology. Exactly. And we do have to be on the lookout for just because we have these needs and, and th- because our needs are real doesn't mean that those needs won't be commercialized or professionalized before we've even found them. You know, you've yeah. got WeWork is out there trying to now develop. Now they're just calling themselves We, you know, and they are basically commodifying social reality. And it's like, we don't need someone to commodify that. We don't need someone to create a space that we pay for in order to be safe, to interact with other people. That's like, that's what the world is, you know? <laughs> it's already yeah. there. Yeah, yeah I not thought of that. What, what if humans got together and worked? Yeah, yeah. and then we created a business around that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh. that sounds slightly absurd. Yeah. One of the reasons I brought the term humanism up is because I've heard you describe, well, so in your book, you were mentioning this earlier, how you intentionally, it sounds like, don't mention um, a lot of names, like company names, like Google or, or et cetera. Uh, and in there, there's a few not so subtle digs at various various parts of, um, of maybe... Uh, the modern world or certainly the world of technology. And one of them is transhumanism. Uh, and you, you don't mention a famous transhumanist by name who you said, I think, did, didn't you say that he said you, um, you were on the side of the humans because you were a human or, or something? Yeah. Like that? He was arguing that, you know, we should upload consciousness and all that and, and accept the technologies, our successor, our evolutionary successor. And, uh, uh, you know, humbly, uh, uh, accept our extinction as humans. And I made a little passion case for humans in the face of, you know, all this digital extraction that human beings are special and we deserve a place in the digital future. And then he said, Oh, Rushcraft, you're just saying that because you're a human. 
you know, and that's, you know, was really the motivation for then this whole team human. I said, well, sure, damn, I'm, I'm, I'm a human. Fine. But did it directly come from that? Yeah. Guilty as charged. I'm on team human. That's where yeah. that came up. And, and I refuse to feel bad for arguing for a place for humans and, and all of these species um, in the digital future. There's no real reason to get rid of us, particularly before we know what we even are or what we have to offer. You know, if we think of human beings purely in terms of utility value, then yeah, you know, machines are, are, are deserve, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 to take over because they are going to be more efficient. They will have more utility value than us. But I don't think that that's the real reason for humans. You know, I think that there's uh, uh, something underlying us. I still believe that humans are conscious, even though many of our computer scientists argue that we're not. I think humans are conscious. I think we have uh, perceptions and feelings and our relationships are real. I think that human beings have souls or at least soul, you know, uh, something animating us and that I'm not ready to dismiss us as some emergent phenomenon of matter groping towards complexity. But uh, I think that there's something, I think there's something going on here um, that, that it, it's too easy for a few billionaire technology people to dismiss this as worth nothing. And that's only because they, they hate people so much and they're so afraid of life and they'd rather have a Japanese animatronic sex doll than a real human unless, <laughs> you know, unless it's a slave anyway, you know, some woman 40 years younger than them. So that, that, that I'm a, uh, I, I'm, I'm no longer ashamed of arguing that human beings are special and there's something, there's something going on here more than meets the eye. I mean, it's mad that, that this would seem novel. Um, what it, so yeah, the, I guess there's this, this trans, transhumanism kind of worldview that is like an incredibly materialistic view, like reducing, reducing everything to, to matter and, and what we know of engineering and science. I know I went to, a, a, I saw a talk at a business school recently and the, the lecturer was quite scared of it. She actually said that she felt transhumanism was the underlying belief system that was driving most technology companies. I'm not near enough to those big companies to know whether that's the case or not. Um, but is, is this like uh, something that you really see that it's, it's a real movement towards, towards kind of promoting and seeing the world in that way? Yeah, well, I mean, it's their answer to climate change. It's their answer to to narrative. To everything. Yeah, you know, it's 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 they're still stuck in this sort of pre-digital understanding of narrative that every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. They're kind of stuck in this almost uh, uh, early Christian paradigm, and if they need an ending, they're going to get one. Right? And I'm trying to say, no, we don't necessarily need an ending. We can keep on going. We can make this more like a fantasy role-playing game where the object of the game is to keep the game going, not to win the game. And because one, you're, 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 that is the sort of the winner-takes-all, you know, the, the winner-takes-all problem, that it wasn't really possible until now, until digital acceleration, to get everything suck 
all the chips off the table <laughs> to have everything mm-hmm. and for everyone else to have nothing that we're actually at the point where we're talking about universal basic income, not uh, because we don't have jobs for people to do, but because the, the, the rich have taken all the money off the table. It's, it's insane where it's gotten. Yeah, and where where you weren't happy to describe yourself full stop uh, or as a humanist, I have heard people describe themselves as transhumanists and and say I'm a transhumanist. Um, so that seems to that that seems to suggest like a real religious fervor behind that idea. Well, yeah, I mean, if you believe as as many people do and perhaps should that the 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 Earth will no longer be habitable by humans for much longer, you know, one way of trying to think past that, that seeming inevitability is that, oh, well, you know, humans might not be there, but the transhumans will, you know, whatever that is, that yeah. maybe the environment will support a, a, a server that I can be on if I can't breathe the air. Oh my God, it can't get more matrix uh, yeah. than, than seeing that future. Uh, I want to just pick up on, on a couple of other of those, those kind of references you make in Team Humans. There's, there's the transhumanist one, which we've just covered. Then you, you also have one chapter entitled Renaissance Now, which I'm guessing was a, was a reference to Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Is that correct? No. I mean, ah, okay. Is- no, Renaissance Now okay. is a theme I came up with in 1989 um, or 90 when I was first on the well. And I started a topic on the well, which was an online bulletin board of kind of left coast people. Um, and it was called Renaissance Now. And I was asking whether or not we are in the, uh, the, beginnings of a new renaissance as profound as the renaissance of the 1300s you know and uh so it was back then renaissance now it was actually a play on apocalypse now which had come out not so long before that the the popular movie about vietnam right okay <laughs> so i i thought you were referencing to that because i seem to remember you you kind of sharing a, a, a mild di- distaste uh, at his. Um, well, it just it just seemed to me like you were you were talking about that. But I got that one, yeah. that bit wrong. Um, that's okay. I've got one more, which was uh, you you talk about the the distaste you have for the term humane technology, um, which is from from the time well spent Tristan Harris kind of movement, I think, isn't it? Yeah. What's your? Um, I'm confused as to what your, your. I think you don't like the word humane. I'm. I'm curious as to your beef with that because that feels like you're on the same team. Well, in a way, we are. We're after the same thing. But I mean, when I hear humane technology, I think about like cage-free chickens. You know that these chickens were treated humanely all the way from birth to the slaughter. So it's like as long we still have to extract data from people and take all their money and use them in these ways. But let's try to get these companies to do it as humanely as possible. The whole orientation of humane technology is about, um, is, is from the perspective of the technology. How is the technology treating the humans? The humans are the passive, the, the, the passive player. We are the, the objects, not the subjects of the story. And that's not the appropriate orientation. What do you want to do with technology? Not 
what are you going to let technology do to you? Right. So it feels to me like it's the, the branding or framing of that issue, particularly that, that's... Yeah, but the reason why it's framed that way is because they're looking for little regulatory tweaks. I just interviewed Roger McNamee the other night, who's you know one of the founders of the Center for Humane Technology, or the guy who paid for it, I guess. And you know he's talking about these, these tiny incremental policy changes that won't even work. Oh, well, let's make a law that makes it illegal for them to use your data. It's like, all right, you, go, you know, good luck with that. You know, let me just tell people this, these platforms are stupid not to use them. What's the point? You know, what's, you know, what, you know they're, they're, they're still invested. They are still invested in the companies that they say they want to reform. So their idea is how do we reform these companies and still make a shitload of money? You know what I mean? Mm. That you, you can't, it's, it's a, they're, they're trying to figure out a compromise that will still allow these companies to grow at the rate required by the market so their share prices go up. And that's, that's, they're not recognizing the underlying operating system. Yeah, so it, seem, it seems to me that you're, what you're trying to do, if I'm right, is there's two, my sense is that there's two layers to your approach or your solution at least, which is to look at the underlying operating system, you call it, or the, the mechanisms behind, um, however deep that tends to go, because it seems that capitalism itself is, is a big chunk of that. And then one step deeper for you is culture in general, and I think you seem to approach that by, by really talking about narratives and and promoting different narratives to the to the extractive one that, that is kind of dominant. Yeah, I mean I'm real I'm happy for people to change the laws and and you know and do policy and you know I love you know AOC here in the US. This is all good, but um I guess it's not it's not my own focus and I feel like policy is always kind of following culture rather than leading it. Yeah, so it's reactionary I, there. Yeah. And it's like, okay, so then finally they get around to making a rule um, because these companies are so good at getting around the rules. I mean, for, for, I love the, you know, the right to privacy and the anti cookies and all that of Europe and England, whatever, you know, the rules that they made. But now what did that finally amount to is people click on something saying, are you willing to give away all your rights? And it's like, yes, fine. Because if I don't click on this, I'm not going to get to see the thing yeah. that I want to see this minute. So what did that really accomplish? Just added a click, really. Yeah, it added a click. <laughs> that's, that, that's, the, that's the short of it. Um, so maybe I, I'm aware of your time. A, a way to finish is what are some ideas that you would like to champion? Um, yeah, what, what are some, if, if you've, we've said plenty about the, the things that you're, you're speaking against, what are some some people you'd like to cheerlead and you'd like to promote. It could be movements or, or organizations, whatever. I mean, uh, I mean, all this stuff, we've actually been talking as much about, uh, it's funny that it doesn't feel like it though. Um, we've been talking as much about what people can do as what, what they shouldn't. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not big into brands and branded movements and, oh, read this guy or do that thing or join this. 
I'm much more promoting a kind of local brandless, anonymous, mm. uh, not anonymous, but, but, but not publicized participation, you know, you know, go to your, your, your join your, your school board, uh, uh, see who's in your town, walk around without your face and your phone, make eye contact with people. You know, the, the steps I'm asking people take are uh, very kind of simple behavioral ones that then trigger a whole lot of other stuff. There's tens of thousands of solutions to our social problems. So I don't want to say, oh, um, do this one or do that one. I mean, simple guidelines are, you know, we got to change schools. We have to change school. We have to look at school less as a, a job training, less as a way of externalizing the cost of, of employee training from corporations to the public sector, and then as a way of um, teaching people how to uh, engage with other humans. You know, don't bring screens into the classroom. Teach kids how to make eye contact, how to present. Um, look at school as what it was intended as, which is compensation for a life of work, not preparation for a life of work. It's about, you know, giving people uh, uh, the, the, the time and, and, and training they need to live a life of dignity where you can read and appreciate a novel or participate meaningfully in representative democracy. Uh, um, you know, just to start, um, if you want to get involved, I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. I see so many new organizations trying to reinvent civics and reinvent this. You know, there are town meetings, there's land use meetings, there's activists out there. There's already, I feel like, more than enough organizations trying to do things. So I don't think, I don't think we need a website of all the websites that are <laughs> out there for all the things. You know, I'm, I'm just just go go do it it's it's so much easier than than it looks so i would say don't look for it online start don't look for something to sign or things to come on um but but try to find it in the real world and and the challenge of finding it in the real world is what will create the change. So if you find out that over the last 10 or 20 years since you've been inside looking at screens that all the public parks were taken away and turned into strip malls, then it's a matter of, okay, what public space are we going to reclaim? Where is there another human being in my neighborhood who's looking uh, to, to, you know, reestablish some relationships? I mean, I am, you know, I, I do my team human podcast, which is a great thing to listen to. And there's, you know, every person who's been on there is another hero to read, to follow, to, to get inspiration from. There's a lot of them who are setting up, you know, community groups all over the place. There are team human meetups happening where people, you know, listen to the shows together, get their own guests and start their own conversations and look at, you know, what can they do locally. Uh, there's uh, uh, in our backyards, IOB is a, a, a way to, to crowdfund for local reinvestment. There's, I mean, there's so many. Uh, uh, I mean, just peruse, go to Team Human and look at the, each guest. Each one is a trailhead to another, you know, major uh, cultural movement. You know, and, and the UK is in some ways easier than here because you've got all the kind of permaculture people and, you know, the, the environmental people. You've got the, the uh, Extinction Rebellion and here we have the, the Sunrise Movement. So there's more than ample ways to get involved. It's more a matter of, uh, 
you know, how not to would be almost a bigger challenge at this point. How do you resist uh, engaging with the other real people in your life to, uh, to do this? I mean, for me, the biggest challenge is how do I get off podcasts and, and you know what <laughs> I mean? Because I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm doing now, there's so many, everybody's, it seems everyone has one. So I'm doing three or four a day in most cases. And then, you know, then, and answering email. And that's about, that's how my life has gotten. So for me, it's the challenge is, uh, how do I stop and say, okay, I've done enough. I've talked to enough people. I've had enough glory. I've shared enough ideas. Now I'm going to go back to scale and just be another regular person trying to, you know, connect with others in his town and make the world a better place. You know, amplification is not required. Yeah, it sounds like what you're, what you're basically saying is maybe don't do and be. Um, and and the, the first place to look for that is, is, you know, family, friends, neighbors, people around you. It does start, you know, do favors for people and accept favors in return. You know, try, try to promote mutual aid where you are. I mean, the, the, not everything we do has to scale globally to be real. You know, you can change 10 people's lives. Uh, that's huge. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's pretty good. Uh, Douglas, thank, I think that's a, that's a lovely ending. Uh, and so uh, I think it gives people something, something fluffy yet tangible to, to, to leave with. And I think that's a lovely thing. So I think this is a good point to... Exactly. This is a good point to stop. And, and thanks so much for, for joining. I really appreciate you making the time amongst all, all the, the many other podcasts that you're, that, you're, that you're conducting at the moment. I hope it all continues to go, go really well for you. I hope so. I mean, it's, it's, I think podcasts reach people. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, mate. Cheers. Right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, if you did, please give it a nice star rating on your podcast app. Uh, feel free to join the newsletter, which is johnbarnes.me forward slash newsletter. And you can also subscribe to patreon.com forward slash johnbarnes on a monthly pay what you want basis. Also make sure you buy Douglas's book Team Human, which you can find at teamhuman.fm. And I look forward to seeing you or hearing from you or whatever you hearing from me next time on the How Might We podcast. Thanks and take care.